Thank you for listening to Franklin City Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information on Franklin City Church, please check us out at www.franklincitychurch.com. So Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Today I want to look at how Jesus honored women, females created in the image of God. And I want to focus on the attributes of God that we see in his interactions with women. So first I'd like to ask you, if you will, to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. And we're going to look at five different uh, interactions that Jesus had with women and the attributes of God that he displayed as he interacted with them. And the first one here is Mary, the sister of Martha, and uh, her brother was Lazarus. And I'm going to read uh, Mark 14, 1 through 9. And what I want you to see is I want you to see the attributes of graciousness and gratitude in this story, how Jesus was gracious and how he was grateful. He showed gratitude. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, speaking of Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany, which was just about two miles from Jerusalem, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman, who we know to be Mary, of Mary and Martha from uh, the passage in John chapter 12. So Mary came with an alabaster flask of ointment, a pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. See how gracious Jesus is being? He says, For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good to them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Sometimes I think, especially we men, we just wake up on the wrong side of the bed oftentimes and we're a little grumpy and don't appreciate uh, our wives or others around us. Never happens to you, Chris. Boy, I'm going to keep my eyes on you. That's all right. I want to live like you, brother. But we see the group here, probably especially Judas, who kept the money. I thought that was going to happen. I have big enough ears. This shouldn't be a problem. There we go. Lael, if it falls off again, just give me a thumbs up or something. Let me know. Um, Judas especially, but probably others thought, okay, 300 denarii for this costly nard, this this pure nard, which I guess was an aromatic kind of a, um, substance, and basically, it was about the wage of an average wage earner for a whole year. So, I mean, that is quite a bit of money. 
And she takes this and breaks, breaks the top of the, the neck that was holding it, and she pours it on Jesus' head. And if you read the John 12 passage, we also see that she probably put some on his feet and then wiped his, his feet with her hair. I mean, this was a total loving, sacrificial act of worship and praise. And it just kind of makes sense, too, because this is not that long after Jesus raised her brother Lazarus from the dead. I mean, this is an appropriate response uh, at this point in time. And Jesus receives it. He receives that love and that sacrifice that's being poured out and recognizes that and is gracious toward her, although others may have thought less of her for doing it. He commends her, and he shows gratitude. He says, wherever this gospel is preached, wherever this word is preached, it's, you are going to be remembered for your sacrificial act of love. So that's a couple of attributes that we see that in Jesus' interaction uh, with Mary, graciousness and gratitude. Now, if you will, go to Luke chapter 10. I'm going to jump into Luke chapter 10. And I'm, I'm staying on the Mary theme, Mary and Martha. Uh, this is a favorite passage of mine. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 38. We see the attributes of wisdom and counsel. All right, Luke 10, 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. You know, this morning as I was reading back over that, I looked at that one line, Lord, do you not care? Doesn't that just seem so out of place to say that to Jesus, who created us, died for us, redeemed us? I mean, if there's anybody who ever cared, it was Jesus. Nobody cares like he cares. And yet she lost sight of that. And she lost sight of what was the most important thing when Jesus was in the room. When Jesus was in the house, all that other stuff was not nearly as important as sitting at his feet and listening to his word. So she, has the gum she goes up to the Lord and uh, complains, basically, grumbles. And it says the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. Can you just sort of sense his... Ah, Martha, 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 Martha. That's how I would have done it. <laughs> just dramatize it just a little bit, you know. It says, you are anxious and troubled. First she's distracted, then she's anxious, then she's troubled about so many different things. Can anybody identify with those three words? I can. I am very distracted from Jesus. I get troubled over things. I get anxious, even though the Bible says be anxious for nothing, but start praying. I still get anxious. My grandson was a week late. I was starting to get anxious. Probably wasn't to the troubled point, but I was starting to wonder, come on, kids, it's time. You need, need to come. Yeah. <laughs> 
but she lost sight. And so Jesus says, you're anxious and troubled about many things. Isn't it wonderful, the insight that Christ has into our life and how he offers wisdom and counsel and just the right scripture at just the right time to meet whatever is going on inside of us. And we think, how in the world does he do that? Just like that passage you showed me this morning, James. The Lord knew and he gave you, he gave you his word. He says, but one thing is necessary. In other words, thank you for welcoming me. Thank you for serving me. Thank you for giving me some food and drink, perhaps washing my feet, all of those things that went with being hospitable in those days. But all those things don't matter as much as just getting close to me and hearing my words because my time is limited. Jesus knew his time was coming. One thing is necessary, and Mary has chosen that. And that won't be taken away from her. Now, there's a whole message in, in just this short little passage, but I'll just say this to us. If you sense any kind of anxiousness or discouragement, you're troubled about things, uh, you're distracted, you can't focus, then just come to Jesus in prayer and say, Lord, my mind, my eyes, my energies are in so many places right now. I need to line them up behind you, spend time with you so that you can order my day, order my week, order my world. And yet, even as a, as a pastor, even when I'm preparing to preach or teach or to counsel, I sometimes find myself running ahead of God and just going along, assuming that he's going to bless me like he's blessed me thousands of times. <laughs> Distractions. You see what I mean? <laughs> Who was it, anyway? Philip? Oh, he got away. Okay, pray for Philip. Got to get him not anxious and troubled in the classroom, right? I want mom and dad. So we see, anyway, we see Jesus' wisdom here and his counsel, all right? Uh, let's go to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. This is the woman in the well, Samaritan woman. And we're going to see God's patience and truthfulness here. In other words, Jesus is going to patiently listen to her questions and going to give her instruction and help bring her along in her understanding of who he is and what she really needs in her life. Because she's seeking what she needs in all these different men that she's been with. And Jesus is saying, look, you're going to keep thirsting and thirsting and thirsting with your present lifestyle. But if you'll accept me as the Messiah, as the Christ, as the anointed one, then you're going to have this living water and your thirst is going to be quenched. All right, let's pick it up in verse 5. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour, which means it was about noontime. Uh, the Jewish day starts at 6 a.m., so 6 a.m. and six, the sixth hour would make it at noon. In other words, it's the heat of the day. It's hot. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now, if you're coming out at that time of the day, it means you really don't want to encounter the other ladies of the village because they've come out much earlier in the coolness of the day to gather their water. So she's coming out at high noon to avoid having to interact with the ladies 
because you'll see later on that she's had a few relationships, all right? So it says, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Samaritans were sort of a a mixed breed of people, Jewish people and Assyrians, back when Assyria came down and captured the northern ten kingdoms. They took some Jews up to Assyria, and Assyrians then came and and planted themselves in in Israel. And so over the centuries, uh, they mixed and and formed a, a group of people that were not pure Jews. And so the Jews of Judea and Jerusalem area looked down upon the Samaritans because they weren't pure Jews in in their race. Uh, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman, notice in this conversation too that she tries to go a certain direction and Jesus sort of changes it. It, It's it's interesting how she avoids him and he keeps keeps trying to draw her back to what she really needs to hear and what they really need to talk about. This is fascinating conversation. Um, Verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. I would have said, well, what do you mean living water? What are you talking about? But she just assumes he's talking about the physical water. Here's the well, but you have nothing to draw water with. So how are you going to draw water and give me water? Where do you get that living water? She finally says, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. You ever feel like in the course of your day, the routines that you have, that, you know, we're, we're creatures of habit. We kind of go through our routines, just like on a Sunday morning. You know, we can come in and go through the routine of Sunday morning and walk out and think, well, what did he say? What was that about? Well, I mean, we sometimes just kind of, we're on just on autopilot. Kind of like your car has certain places it goes and you're going somewhere different and all of a sudden you turn, it's like, I'm not going home, I'm going here. So sometimes we just get into routines and habits. Um, she got in the routine of this physical water, and here's the, the, the giver of life who's giving li- living water, and she has a hard time making the transition and seeing the whole point. But he keep, he's patient. He keeps patient. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In other words, this life-giving water is going to be eternal. And of course, I think she's probably thinking, what does he mean by that? The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So she's, she's wanting that. But there's part of her old nature that Jesus needs to expose so that she recognizes there needs to be some repentance along with her faith in wanting this living water. So he says to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And then Jesus, who knows everything, said to her, you are right 
and saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, okay, so instead of dwelling here, notice she wants to move on to something else. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. So in other words, in, instead of thinking about the fact that he's saying to her, your lifestyle is not godly, it's not right. She all of a sudden begins to throw a little bit of flattery on him, thinking that will get her out of this hot seat and can move on the conversation. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And then she goes into a discussion about where we're going to worship. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So Jesus then, trying to move her forward in her theology, he says to her, woman, which is not a derogatory term, it'd be like saying, ma'am, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we, what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? Well, it means in spirit. It's not talking about the Holy Spirit. It's talking about our inner man, our inner person, all that is, all that we are, that we're going to worship in that spirit and worship according to truth. There's a lot of things in, in the world that you can worship, and it might, you might worship it with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but it's, it's not what you should be worshiping. So worship has to be spirit and has to also be according to truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now the woman's beginning to catch on a little bit more, and she says to him, I know that Messiah is coming. In other words, the Christ, the anointed one, I know that. I know enough about that to know that he is coming. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And then Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So if you were to follow the rest of the storyline, then she goes and begins to, t to come to everybody and just says, come see a man who told me all that I've ever did can this be the Christ? And ultimately, because of her testimony, it says in verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. If it weren't for Jesus continuing to go back to truth and, being, and patiently sharing that truth with her, she would not have had the story well enough to go and to tell others, and other people would not have come to know Christ. But because... An attribute of God is patience, which kind of goes along with his love, his mercy, his grace. All of those kind of overlap one another. But think about how patient God's been with you. Think about the times that you've kind of gone off course or you've left the path and God patiently, you know, re rebukes you in whatever way is necessary to bring you back on path and your eyes fixed upon him. Just patiently, he keeps teaching, he keeps correcting, he keeps reproving, and he keeps using truth to bring you back to the way, the truth, and the life to come back to Jesus. And Jesus does that with this, with this woman, that 
culturally speaking, most Jewish men would not have even taken the time, you know, given her the time of day. And what I want you to see as I'm sharing these attributes, these are all what are called communicable attributes. They're attributes that are shared with us. Not that we can become as patient as Jesus or we can't become as loving as Jesus, but we're instructed to be patient and to love, to show mercy, to be gracious, to show gratitude. These are all things that we see Jesus, um, as he interacts with women, that should be a part of our life as well. All right, let's move on to the next one. Move uh, to John chapter 8. This is also another favorite story of mine. This is the woman caught in adultery. And here we're going to see Jesus' mercy and forgiveness. Jesus' mercy and forgiveness. Let's start with verse 2. John 8, verse 2. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, I can just see him now, Teacher, this woman, pointing at her right in the middle of all these men, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They're trying to put Jesus in a place where, you know, there's, there's not a good way out. Is he going to allow them to stone her? Well, he's merciful here. He's forgiving. He's also wise. So they were doing this to test him. And so Jesus bent down and begins to write in the sand. You ever tried to figure out what Jesus was writing? I don't know that, you know, the word really doesn't tell us, so it's all speculation, but I think maybe he began to write down maybe some of the men's names that were there and then maybe writing one of their sinful habits or sins beside that name. Some of these men may have even been involved with this woman. So just by writing their names down, there may have been conviction. But he begins to write names or something in the sand. And then they continued to ask him. So he stood up and he said, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Wow. <laughs> I love it when Jesus, when he says something, and it's kind of like it just kind of takes the legs out from underneath everybody. Okay, if you've never sinned before, then go ahead and pick up a stone and throw it. So it says the, they began to leave the older ones first who probably recognized after living longer that, well, I have a lot of sins in my life, so I can't, I can't pick up a stone. So they all left, and then Jesus stood up and, and said to her, verse 10, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on sin no more. Mercy, grace, forgiveness, wisdom. You see all these attributes of God in, in this setting. Uh, Jesus rescuing a person who these men demanded that her life be taken, even though they had probably as great a sins or greater sins than her. 
and Jesus is forgiving. I was thinking of the also the parable where uh, this servant owed his master a certain amount of money, and it was a great sum, and uh, he couldn't pay it. So he went and begged the Lord. He went and begged his master, Lord, I, I can't pay it. Please forgive me. And the master did. The master forgave him. But then this same slave goes out and finds another servant who owed him just a, a small amount of money and begins to demand that he return that money or he was going to be thrown in jail along with his family. As we think about Jesus' mercy and forgiveness toward us, it should cause us to be willing then to show mercy and to forgive others. That's the example that, that Christ gives us, to be tender-hearted, merciful, forgiving one another, just as, the, just as God in Christ also forgave you. And then the last uh, story I want to share is in John chapter 19. And this shows the attributes of love and kindness. And this is really appropriate on Mother's Day, this passage. John 19, verse 25 to 27. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, and John's referring to himself, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. Here's Jesus on the cross in agonizing pain, near death, and yet he looks down on his mother whom he loved and shows love and kindness by making sure that there's going to be a disciple who's going to care for his mom. Now, myself, I noticed in, in my own self that when I get a little bit tired or my back is painful or my knee or one of my other body aches going on, I find myself being less loving, less patient, less kind. I'm just a little bit more irritable. I'm a little more on the edge. I'm a little quieter. I'm not as hospitable. All those things. But here's Jesus who's near death. And yet all he can think about is making sure his mom's taken care of. So, man, I want to talk to the men here this morning. Uh, you know, we're also created in the image of God, male and female. So we're created in the image of God in order to display the attributes of God and to bring God glory. And you know, in Christ, this same image is being renewed in us day by day. So turn to one last verse. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. Right after First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians chapter 3. A good reminder to all of us that as we begin to think about, okay, how can I exercise these same attributes toward others? I want you to remember that you have a new self. You have a new identity. You have Christ in you, the hope of glory. You have the Holy Spirit. You can't do these things apart from that. You've got to have it. All right, verse 1 says, if, which really means since, since then you have been raised with Christ, positionally speaking, seek the things that are above, 
where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died to those old things, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will, be, will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Put anger away and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed day by day in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here's the thing. We were created in the image of God, but Adam and Eve sinned, and so that image was marred, all right? And we began to experience sin and death, and Satan had power over us. But then Christ comes into the world, and he dies for our sin. He pays the penalty. That alienation has been taken away. Now we can draw near to God as we put our faith in him. We can be justified, sanctified, and even as God sees it, glorified. And we have this new inner man. Yes, we still have some sin in our members that we have to deal with, but we have this new inner man in Christ who can empower us as we keep our eyes focused on him and his word and look to him instead of the things that are fleshly and of the earth. We have the power to live a created in Christ image with our sisters, with our brothers, with everyone here. So, men, I just want to challenge you as we think about our ladies this day in the special place they have in our lives. Here's a question I have for you. Based on the attributes of God that we've seen in the life of Jesus as he interacted with women, how should we respond to the women in our lives? We should respond to them as Christ responded to them, with graciousness and gratitude, with wisdom and counsel, with patience and truthfulness, with mercy and forgiveness, love and kindness. So guys, that's my challenge for you today, to be those kind of men. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your great love this morning, and I thank you for your attributes that you share with us. And you give us your spirit and your word to allow us to know how we should respond to others. And the Holy Spirit, who lives within us, that teaches us this truth and guides us, who gives us the power and the wherewithal and the wisdom to be your image bearers. Lord, I want to thank you for our sisters this morning. I thank you for just the love and the sweetness and the beauty that they bring to our lives. Thank you for the way that you use them to refresh us and, and to add that extra touch that just makes the world so much nicer, so much kinder, so much sweeter. 
Lord, may you bless each of these women today, whether they be old or very young. May they recognize how special they are to you, that they were created in your image, that it was not good for man to be alone, that they are needed here to, to be helpmates and to, and to be um, lovers and leaders, to raise children unto godliness. Lord, we thank you for them this morning, and I pray for the men that are here, that you help them to rise to the challenge of living for Christ and like Christ toward our sisters who are in Christ. Lord, draw us close to you, draw us close to one another, and allow our love and those things that you have given us to overflow uh, into the spheres of influence that we have. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.